you to take your Bibles then and begin making your way to Hebrews chapter 8. You might find the notes in your uh, bulletin also helpful for this morning as you turn there. Now, as you're making your way to Hebrews chapter 8, my guess is there's some very important things that you didn't wake up this morning thinking about. That's how it goes. A lot of times we think about a lot of things, right, when we wake up, sometimes not very important things. But I feel pretty certain that you probably didn't wake up this morning thinking about gravity. But gravity is pretty important, isn't it? Like if the laws of gravity quit working, we would be in big trouble, wouldn't we? Uh, Life as we know it would end. Uh, Of course, that's physics. What about physiology? Uh, We probably didn't wake up this morning thinking about breathing. Something we often don't think about. You just wake up and you go about your day. But breathing's pretty important, isn't it? Uh, You know it's important, especially when your breathing is suddenly threatened. Uh, Your ability to breathe is threatened. Then you're like, wow, this is really important. But in general, we don't wake up thinking about these things. The passage we come to today in Hebrews chapter 8 is is kind of similar in the sense that it's a very important topic, but it's one that you probably didn't wake up this morning thinking about. And that is unless you read ahead. Some of you do read the text ahead of time, uh, getting ready for the sermon. But Hebrews 8 deals with the new covenant. In terms of uh, if you are a child of God, if you are trusting Jesus as your Savior, the new covenant is vastly important to you. The reason you made it through this week, the reason you can stand before God as a, as a child of God, as one of God's holy ones, is because of the new covenant. Vastly important, but probably something you don't often think about. I'm guessing, I'm guessing. I mean, I don't wake up and think about it. Uh, but Hebrews 8 brings us to this day, and it invites us to think about it, take some time to really to really marinate on this new covenant. Now, as we talk about this passage today, just a quick review on uh, finding our footing where we are in the book of Hebrews. We've spent the last three weeks in chapter 7 talking about Jesus as the greater high priest, comparing Jesus to the Levitical priesthood. So we've been talking about these things and seeing Jesus as the greater high priest. And last Sunday, we saw of Pastor Jay, as we come to, uh, came to Hebrews 7, everything was kind of leading up to this climax in verse 25, where we see that Jesus is the greatest high priest, and because of that, he's able to save completely. That was the climax. Because Jesus is your high priest, he is able to save you completely. Now, as we come to chapter 8, it's almost like we slow down a little bit, and we, we start to answer the question, okay, if Jesus is the one who saves us completely, how does he do it? How, how are we saved completely? And part of the answer to that is the new covenant. Now, I want us to see this as we come to this section. This is what I, I put on your notes here. That as a better high priest, Jesus is not just a better person doing the same old role. No, Jesus is a better high priest who has a better ministry. He, he mediates a better covenant, and that's what we want to see today is these, all these things around Jesus, not just a better high priest, but we want to see what is this better ministry? What's this better covenant? Now, now Hebrews 8, listen, Hebrews 8 is an, a theologically rich passage. Theologians write books on, on, on this topic, on the topic of the new covenant. But I want us to see here that the, the true value of chapter 8 isn't its intellectual stimulation It's that it answers the biggest, most important question you could possibly have. Now, a moment ago, I said we don't often wake up thinking about very important things, but we often think about other things. There are a lot of things we spend time thinking about that when you stand before God, won't matter one bit. But I tell you, one question that will matter when you stand before a holy God is this. How do I, as a sinful person, come before a holy God and be accepted. How is it that God looks at a sinful man like me and says, that is my beloved child? That is an important question. And so we're going to look at that today. Now, uh, what I want to do then is I want to pray. I want to ask God uh, for his help because uh, my invitation to you this morning is to enter this, to get your minds ready Uh, And and perhaps there are things here you will find that maybe you have wrong beliefs in. Um, Maybe you believe things that are not true. And to invite God to work in our hearts and minds today, 
to reveal those things to us and help us be at a place where we're ready to accept his work. So let's pray, ask God for his help, and then we'll, we'll take a look at this passage today. Pray with me. God, we are thankful. We are thankful for your word. We are thankful that you have given us this, this wonderful privilege to open your word to us, to know that you are a God who desires to be known and that you want us to know truth about you. You want us to know how to relate to you in a right way. God, we are so thankful that you don't leave us to our imaginations to try to figure out who you are or what pleases you, what is good and what is not good. And so, God, this morning we, we ask that you would be present, that your spirit would work in us, that you would reveal areas perhaps where we do have wrong belief, and when confronted with those things, Lord, that you would help us not to be resistant, but that you would give us soft hearts ready to, to make corrections. God, I believe this is not something we can do in our own strength. And God, I believe this, that when we open your word, that your Holy Spirit interacts with your good word to bring about true change and that we can change. We can. But we need your help, God. And so we, we ask for it today. As I speak, Lord, speak through me and help me to be clear in what I say and help us to have ears to hear what you want us to hear today. We pray this in the, the most powerful name of Jesus and through the Spirit. Amen. Well, I would like to read our passage for you today, Hebrews chapter 8. I'm going to read the whole thing, all 13 verses, and then we'll take a look at it. But, but read along with me here. Now the point in what we are saying is this. We have such a high priest, one who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven, a minister in the holy places, in the true tent that the Lord set up, not man. For every high priest is appointed to offer gifts and sacrifices. Thus, it is necessary for this priest also to have something to offer. Now, if he were on earth, he would not be a priest at all, since there are priests who offer gifts according to the law. They serve a copy and shadow of the heavenly things. For when Moses was about to erect the tent, he was instructed by God, saying, See that you make everything according to the pattern that was shown you on the mountain. But, that, but as it is, Christ has, ordained, uh, has ordained, obtained a ministry that is much more excellent than the old, as the covenant he mediates is better, since it is enacted on better promises." For if that first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no occasion to look for a second. For he finds fault with them when he says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will establish a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. Not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. For they did not continue in my covenant. And so I showed no concern for them, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my laws into their minds and write them on their hearts. And I will be their God and they will be my people. And they shall not teach one another, one, one his neighbor and each one his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest. For I will be merciful toward the, their iniquities and I will remember their sins no more. In speaking of, the new, of a new covenant, he makes the first one obsolete. And what is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. So here we are. There's our passage today. And really what we see here is two sections. You probably see this in your Bibles. The formatting changes in verse 8 in most of your Bibles because it's a big quote. So verses 1 through 7, we really see the author of Hebrews looking at this idea that Jesus is not just a better high priest. He has a better ministry. He has a better covenant. And then in verses 8 through 12, he's going to quote from the Old Testament. He's quoting Jeremiah 31. A little fact here that this is the longest quote of the Old Testament in the New Testament. He's quoting the new covenant to us, and he wants us to see this and understand the implications for you and I. So, so let's take a look first at verses 1 through 7. Now, verses 1 through one and 2 is kind of like an exclamation. It's kind of like, in case you missed it, 
In case after all this time you haven't quite caught on that Jesus is this greater high priest, in case you might have thought, oh, maybe we're talking uh, theoretical here, he's saying, no, this is this. This is a present reality. We have this great high priest. It's Jesus. He's our high priest. It's, it's an exclamation. Now, he talks about the ministry of Jesus, that he has a better ministry, a better covenant. I want to draw your attention then to verse 5 within our text today. Verse 5 says, They serve a copy and shadow of the heavenly things. For when Moses was about to erect the tent, he was instructed by God, saying, See that you make everything according to the pattern that was shown you on the mountain. I want you to really pay attention to verse 5 today. In verse 5, we see that everything preceding Jesus served as a copy and shadow of heavenly things. Now, a few things I want us to see here in this, a few implications of this. Uh, First of all, this reminds us in an age of naturalism that what God ordains is backed by truth. Sometimes we make the mistake of thinking of God and thinking about, well, how did God come about doing all these things? And we might think that that God was somewhat arbitrary in his decisions. Like, you know, he's saying, oh, you know, I think I want people to worship me. I want to set up this holy nation. Let's see, what should this look like? Well, should they do animal sacrifice or not? Uh, Well, I kind of like barbecues, so let's do animal sacrifices. Okay, what should they wear? What should they eat? Well, let's make this kind of difficult for them. You know, some difficult stuff is good. Make sure they really, you know, are dedicated to me. And sometimes we get this idea that what God ordains might have this arbitrary quality to it. And what we're seeing here is, no, what God ordains has a basis in truth. There's a purpose behind it. It's pointing to something. It's, it's a shadow of something real. And we see this. We see it's really important then. It's why God says to Moses, make sure you make everything according to this pattern that I've shown you. Why? Because it's reflecting truth about God. It's not enough to go say, okay, we're going to set up this tabernacle. Next week we'll look at the the tabernacle in more detail as we come to Hebrews 9. And it's not like, you know, they can be like, ah, it's close enough. That's about square. That's kind of what God wanted. No, it's reflecting truth about God. And so it's really important they get all of this right. Now, here's where we go wrong with this. Two ways. One, I think sometimes we look at our world, we look at our understanding of the world, our experiences, and rather than letting God tell us what reality is, we want to take our experiences and we want to judge God by our experiences. And while I think that most of what God tells us makes a lot of sense, I do think there is certainly mystery in what God tells us. And there are times where there are things God says where where. It is right for me to say, I don't understand this, but I trust God's perception of reality more than my own. And so I'm going to trust God in this, and I'm going to obey him. Okay, so we we might make an error by judging God based on what we think reality is rather than listening to God and saying, God actually is in a much better place to tell me what is true and what's not true. The other error we can make is that sometimes when we look at things, we tend to look at things through a naturalistic lens. I mean, in the United States, our worldview, our culture is vastly naturalistic. And and this then influences how we think. And we can look at things that God ordains and we can kind of come at it from this very naturalistic place. I'll use marriage as an example. We might look at marriage and say, you know, perhaps you've said this before, you know, marriage is just a piece of paper. Or, you know, marriage is, you know, a human thing. It's, it was invented by people. Or we might look at the Bible and say, yeah, the Bible talks about marriage, but, you know, it, it was just talking about marriage from the standpoint that that was the cultural norm in the day. Or, you know, the way that God, the reason God did it then was because it was, you know, an agricultural society, you know, agrarian cultures have different needs than we have in in this modern culture. And so, you know, it was just to fit the culture. And, you know, we, we, we err when we do that because we're thinking that God did things through a naturalistic reason rather than that he was ordaining something based on truth about himself. Here's what the Bible says about marriage. It says that marriage reflects truth about God. In the marriage relationship, it reflects truth about how God relates to himself, the triune God, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. In the marriage relationship, it teaches us truth about how Jesus 
respond, how Jesus and the church interact and what that relationship looks like. And when we come along and say, you know, I think that we can redefine marriage, what we're essentially doing is telling God that he's a liar and, and, and saying, no, actually, we, we have a better truth than you. And, you know, there's all sorts of areas that are, are having this done today. Across the field, it's not just marriage. It's things like gender. It's things like sexuality. It's things like even ecclesiology, how we do church, and what does proper worship look like? And we might think that these things are, are being redefined you know, in the secular world, but actually when you look at the Church of America, it's being done in the church because we have this secular, naturalistic lens we're looking through, and we forget that God has ordained things and he does it based on truth. And there's a reason behind it. And we need to be very cautious to redefine things because we are telling God that he's a liar so we see that in this passage. Now, there's another thing here as we look at that these things that God set up in the Old Covenant pointed to things in heaven, they pointed to truth, is this. And this is a big thing. I want you to don't miss this today, okay? Everything that came before served to point to Jesus. Now, there's a common misconception about God's salvation plan. Sometimes people look at what God did in the Old Testament and the New Testament and they might uh, wrongly think that what God did was say, oh, here's, here's how you, you know, things are going to work. You're going to obey this stuff, and you know, the whole world's going to come to me. And then humans messed it all up, and God was like, oh, that didn't work. Uh, maybe we'll try something new. Let's try plan B. And I want you to know today that that is not what happened. That God has had one salvation plan. He's not on his plan B. That all these things that he set up in the Old Testament, they didn't get ruined by humans. All these things were intended to point us to Jesus. They had a purpose to them. It wasn't a plan that, that somehow got messed up. Now, let me use a little illustration here um, I, to flesh this out a little bit. I, I love sports. I love the world of sports. I'm not just watching sports. I just kind of like the drama behind the, fa- the scene. I listen to sports radio partly because it's not too serious. Like they make it sound really serious, but it's really not. And one of the things I love about sports, it's kind of silly part, is you have all these coaches, regardless of what sport you're talking about, you have all these coaches who are, are always trying to take advantage of the rules and, and find a way to, to give themselves an advantage by, by exploiting something in the rules. Uh, one example of this, I really, I just, it, it really cracks me up was in 1951, the St. Louis Browns, Major League Baseball, now St. Louis Cardinals. St. Louis Browns at the time, they signed Eddie Goodell. He has the distinct honor of being the shortest player to ever play Major League Baseball. He stood at a staggering three foot seven. Now, how they went about signing this player was the manager of the Browns knew that if you send a player contract in on a Friday afternoon to the, the offices... It would get there at closing time. They wouldn't look at it. So the contract would basically be temporarily approved on receipt. And then it would be reviewed Monday when the offices opened up. So they sent Goodell's contract in Friday afternoon. It gets approved on receipt. Goodell is put into the game on Saturday. At three foot seven, when Goodell stood at the plate in his batting crouch, his strike zone was all of one and a half inches big basically impossible to strike out. And sure enough, his one time to plate, he, he got walked, and then they put a pinch runner in for him. Well, as you can probably imagine, the rules got quickly changed after that. And today in Major League Baseball, even if you have a contract approved, a player cannot play in a game until the, the league commissioner has the opportunity to review the contract. That's what happens in sports. People find a way to exploit something, and what happens? We make a new rule. Why? Because when we make rules, we don't, we don't know. We don't have the foresight to know how people are going to mess this up. We don't have the knowledge to say, where are the holes in my rule? And so humans come along, pesky as we are, we mess things up. And, and so we make more rules. And one of the challenges every sports league faces is they have these growing rule books that get more and more complex and more and more difficult to understand. That's just the reality. They spend a lot of time talking about this on sports radio. And of course, this isn't just a problem in sports, is it? Every time there's a tragedy in the world, what do people say? We need to make sure that never happens again in 
So what do we do? We make a new rule. We make a new law. makes things very difficult. You try to do foster care, for instance, and the house studies are just incredibly detailed and difficult to pass. Why? Because behind every rule was a bit of history. So then we might come to God and we might look at God and his plan and think, well, was that what happened? Did he make these great rules and people came and messed them up and God said, oh man, what do I do now? I guess I have to come up with new rules. And my answer to you is no, that, that's not what happened. You see, our reality, we, we don't know everything, but God does. Our rules are not perfect, God's are. No, what God was doing was he was giving us something. He wanted to point us to someone. All of the Old Testament, all the Old Covenant pointed to Jesus. And we've been looking at this. Uh, You'll recall several weeks ago, Pastor Jay looked at Sabbath. Had this day of Sabbath. What was the Sabbath all about? Was it just about taking a day off every week? Well, no, it was a constant reminder of our need for rest. Constant reminder, and ultimately it was to point us to our need for ultimate rest. It is to point us to Jesus, who is our Sabbath rest. He's the one we find true, lasting rest in. So these things were all to point us to that. What was the purpose of the priesthood? What was the purpose of the sacrifices? All of it to point to Jesus. They served as a copy of heavenly things. They served to point to something greater, something more true. So the Old Testament was not a plan that got messed up by people. And this was God's plan all along. And all along, he was moving us to this, this greater reality, this new covenant, a better covenant under a better high priest. So I want us to look at this. We're going to move to this next section. And what I want to do, actually, is I want to bring you to Jeremiah 31. So if you want to find your way there to Jeremiah 31, because I'd like to read uh, this whole passage here. And... Uh, I think it will be a benefit to us. So I'm going to read from Jeremiah 31, starting in verse 31. And I want us to take a look at what is this new covenant then? What, was, what were all these things pointing to? What was God's plan all along? Jeremiah 31, 31 says this, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. But this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord. For they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sin no more. Thus says the Lord, who gives the sun for light by day, and fixed order of the moon, and stars for light by night? Who stirs up the sea so that its waves roar? The Lord of hosts is his name. If this fixed order departs from before me, declares the Lord, then shall the offspring of Israel cease from being a nation before me. Thus says the Lord, if the heavens above can be measured and the foundation of the earth below can be explored, then I will cast off all the offspring of Israel for all that they have done, declares the Lord. So here's the new covenant. Now really to to form a foundation of this new covenant, let's think about the previous covenants. There's a few covenants we need to be aware of in Scripture. There's several key, I'd say, mountaintop moments in Scripture. These covenants. The first one is the Abrahamic covenant in Genesis chapter 12. God comes to Abraham. He says, hey, I want you to leave your father's house. I want you to go to a land that I'm going to show you. And he makes promises to Abraham. He says, Abraham, I'm going to make you a great nation. I'm going to give you land. I'm going to give you descendants. And I'm going to bless you. I'm going to make you a blessing. And there was a purpose behind this. There was actually a global purpose behind this. Abraham was being blessed because through him, all the families of the earth were going to be blessed. So God speaks these promises to Abraham. Now, in this covenant, I want you to notice one thing. Are there any conditions in it? No, this is an unconditional covenant. Now, we move on to Exodus chapter 19. Uh, We get to the Mosaic covenant. 
God brings the children of Israel out of Egypt, out of slavery. He brings them to Mount Sinai. He says, okay, I'm going to make you my holy nation. You're going to be a kingdom of priests. Again, another global element here. They're intended to be a kingdom of priests for the whole entire world to know how to worship God. He says, here's what it looks like to be my holy people. I'm going to give you a law. I'm going to give you some rules, and you need to keep these rules. And, and there's going to be some blessings when you keep the rules, but there's also going to be some curses if you don't keep the rules. In fact, Deuteronomy 28, I give you there on your study sheet. Uh, Deuteronomy 28 is all basically, here's the blessings you get when you obey me. Here's the curses you get when you disobey me. What you'll see here is this covenant has a condition. It's conditional. It's based on the people's ability to obey. Then we come to 2 Samuel 7, the Davidic covenant. God comes to David, King David, and he says, David, I'm going to establish your throne forever, your, your line forever. There's going to be one who comes from you who's going to be a king, and his kingdom will never end. He's speaking of Jesus. It's just a promise. Here again is another covenant, not conditional. It's an unconditional promise. God just says, this is what I'm going to do for you, David. I'm going to keep my promise to you. So God comes along with this new covenant, and it's going to replace something. Which one is it replacing? Well, it's replacing the conditional covenant. And I want you to see this, that the new covenant replaces the Mosaic covenant, but it's not God backing out of promises. It's not God finding a new affection, and it's not God trying a plan B. It's very important that we we understand this. In fact, as we look at this covenant, what God is doing is actually, rather than invalidating promises, he's improving on them. He's improving on his promises because basically, essentially, what he's doing is he's taking the conditional elements in the Mosaic covenant and he's replacing them with an unconditional promise. So if we look at Jeremiah 31, the blessings in Jeremiah 31 parallel all the blessings in Deuteronomy 28. In other words, God is simply saying, I'm taking this that I made before and I'm making it a better promise for you. He's improving on it. Whereas the previous covenant involved laws written on stone that you had to obey, the new covenant involves laws written where? On your heart. So So that you'll actually want to obey them. The new covenant promises greater access to God, complete forgiveness of sins, No conditions. And how long is this covenant established for? Well, if we look at verses 35 and 37 of Jeremiah 31, basically forever. As long as the sun and the moon exist, Israel will always have this covenant with them. As long as the universe can't be explored, and and I'm thinking the universe is endless, basically God's saying there's no way you can chart out the whole universe I created. This covenant's always going to stand with my people. Now, one thing I want us to see then is God is not changing his affections. Who is this new covenant made with? Verse 33, we see it's made with Israel and Judah. Now, what's interesting here is within the covenant, there's the inclusion of the nations. The nations has always been part of God's purposes from Genesis 12 on. You look at Genesis, you look at uh, Exodus, you look at all the historical books, you look at the prophets, look at the, the, the poetic books. They're dripping with God's references, his intention to bring all the nations of the world to himself. But I want us to see that the nations don't become a replacement for Israel. Rather, we're included in on this great promise. We benefit from the, from the, the, uh, the blessings of it, but the promise is still made to Israel. You know, one of the places that's really key, I think, in understanding this, when we look at Romans, uh, Paul writes Romans to the church in Rome. The situation there was you had Jewish Christians and Gentile Christians, and they, were kind of, they weren't getting along. And they're kind of trying to one-up each other. And Romans, as a book, is really Paul going and saying, hey, I want you to see here, if you're Jewish, you have no advantage over a Gentile. If you're Gentile, you really have no excuse. Uh, both of you come before God on equal footing. You both equally need Jesus. Neither of you bring anything to the table. And he's detailing how God's salvation plan works. But there comes a point in Romans where where Paul kind of knows there might be a question here. He knows that, you know, people might wonder, well, if God made all these promises to Israel, it kind of sounds like he's forgotten about Israel. Has God forgotten about Israel? 
And Paul deals with that in Romans 10 and 11. I want to read two verses to you, or uh, four verses, two sections to you. I want to read Romans 11, 11. Listen to what Paul says about the future of Israel. He says this, So I ask, did they, he's speaking of Israel, did Israel stumble in order that they might fall? By no means. Rather, through their trespass, salvation has come to the Gentiles so as to make Israel jealous. Now, if their trespass means riches for the world, and if their failure means riches for the Gentiles, how much more will their full inclusion mean? You hearing what he's saying? Romans 11, verse 25, he says this, Lest you be wise in your own sight, I do not want you to be unaware of this mystery, brothers. A partial hardening has come upon Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in, and in this way all Israel will be saved. So Paul knew. He was the apostle to the Gentiles. He knew the Great Commission. Go make disciples of all nations. And he had this knowledge that when this mission is completed, somehow God is going to work in the hearts of Israel to bring them back to him. That there's a temporary hardening of heart, and he's bringing them back to them. I don't want you to miss Paul's point here. This is not God saying, I've changed my mind about Israel and I've moved on to somebody else. And and, and here's why this is so important. This is why I'm bringing this point up to you this morning. Because if our view of God is that he's changed his mind about someone else, if he has new affections, if our view of God is that he's a plan B kind of God, that his first plan got messed up and now he's on a new plan, then what basis do you have to say that God won't change his mind about you? And what do you have, what basis do you have to say that God won't move on to a plan C? But listen to this. God has not changed his affections, and he has not moved on to a new plan. He is a plan A kind of God. He is a faithful God, and that's good news for you because it means that when God speaks promises to you, guess what? He's faithful to you. He's faithful to you. And that is so important for us to see. So I want us to look then, what's the reason for that former covenant then? If God had this this new covenant, why why the former covenant? Now, um, when we look at Hebrews, you can flip back to Hebrews chapter 8 again. When we look at Hebrews chapter 8, verse 7, we get this idea that there is something wrong with the first covenant. He says, for if that first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no occasion for a second. Now, is there something wrong with the first covenant? Did God's law have a flaw in it? Well, I don't think so. I don't think that the flaw was in God's law. Because look at verse 8. It says, For he finds fault with them. The problem was with people. On your stage, she is saying, Which way was their fault in the first covenant? Well, God's law was not flawed, but the covenant relied on flawed humans to obey it. Now get this. Just a moment ago, I used that analogy of rules and sports, and they need to be amended because... We don't know how people are going to mess up our rules. That's not what happened here. God was not caught off guard by the fact that people did not keep his law. He wasn't surprised by the fact that people failed. This was part of his plan all along. But this was the flaw in it. Here's the flaw. Was that God's law, it was God's law paired with my hard heart. This is not a recipe for success. Okay? So I want us to see this. God's plan wasn't ruined by humans. He knew ahead of time that this combination wouldn't work. I give you Deuteronomy 30. I love Deuteronomy 30 because Deuteronomy 28, you have this that section I said, like here's the blessings if you obey. Here's the curses if you disobey. Then you get to Deuteronomy 30. And it's really funny because it's like God already knows what's going to happen. So he switches the language. And he goes, and by the way, when you disobey, this is what I'm going to do to you. I'm going to punish you. I'm going to put you in exile. But I'm going to bring you back. And guess what one of the promises he makes to them is? and I'm going to give you new hearts. He already knew. This is where he was going all along. So then we might ask, so why the former covenant? Why? Why, did God, why didn't God just start with the new covenant? Why didn't he just start with the spirit ministry of, of writing his law right onto our hearts? And I think there's a reason for it. In Romans 7, we see Paul t- spends time talking about this, that the law reveals sin. That without the law, we don't know we're lawbreakers. The law gave us the opportunity to say, man, we are really messed up. I mean, like, no, we're, we're really messed up. Not just the, like, polite sins, you know, that we do and socially accept. Like, we're really messed up. And more than that, 
I think there's this very interesting element. And I want you to take note of this. One thing God was doing with the entire Old Testament is this. With just your hard heart and the law, you can't do this. Think about that time. Moses is coming down from the mountain, shiny new tablets, God's law written on them. How long did it take for the people to break God's law? They were literally already breaking it before he got down the mountain. Like they were literally, they already made this golden calf and they were worshiping it and they were, they were having quite a party um, that would make you blush what they were doing. They were already breaking it. And how many times did they break it after that? It was constant, over and over again, the entire time in the wilderness, the entire time of the book of Judges, the entire time under the monarchy, when the country split between northern Israel, ten tribes in the north, southern Judah, two tribes in the south, both nations struggled with idolatry constantly, constantly breaking laws. Even in the exile in Babylon and coming back, still struggling still unable to obey. Why? Why did God give generation after generation after generation opportunities? And here's what I think. Give you Romans 3, 19 through 20. Paul says this. He says, Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law so that every mouth may be stopped and that the whole world may be held accountable to God, for the, by works of the law no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. Listen to this. Every opportunity was given to get it right. Every law was given to get it right. None of us has the ability to stand before God and say, actually, God, if you just gave me one more chance, if you just made one more rule, What? No, so that every mouth may be stopped. None of us has the ability to say, I think I could have done it. No, you couldn't have. Here's the point of all this, is it points us all back to Jesus and says, there's no way we would ever get this right. How much of a Savior do we need? We absolutely need a Savior. It points us to Jesus Say there on your notes, the former covenant showed us that we don't simply need more rules or more chances. We need new hearts. And that's what God promised. Ezekiel 36, 26, he's speaking of the new covenant. He says, and I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. Isn't that good news? God is already doing that. There's elements of this that are not fully realized, but God is already doing that. He's doing a new work in your heart. You know, I I think that a lot of times when it comes to um, obeying God, we we rely on fences. We try to put fences up to help ourselves obey. Pastor Jay talked about this, I believe, last week. You know, we put fences up on our, our computers to keep us away from things we shouldn't go near. We might take different routes home from work to avoid going by a place that's a big temptation to us. We might not hang out with certain people. I, you know, I, I don't have a problem with fences, but here's the thing. As humans, we're really good at climbing fences, aren't we? I, I get a point to it, but don't you long for a heart that simply doesn't desire those things? Don't you long for it? Isn't this a good promise to have from God? So I want us to think about this then as we respond to God's word, because here's what I want for us today. I want us to see and to cherish how wonderful this is that we are under the new covenant. We have a better high priest and we have a better covenant. So when did this covenant occur? When did it begin? Well, I believe the new covenant began at the death and resurrection of Jesus. Now, there's some elements not fully realized, and that's not too surprising because when you look at all the former covenants, there are always things in those that were still kind of future, not yet things. But I believe that we're under the promises of the new covenant today and we have God's Spirit working in our hearts in a way that He didn't work in the past. And I love this because when we're back in Hebrews 8, we look at where the author ends his quote of Jeremiah 31. He, he, he ends here, uh, look at verse 12, very intentionally on this one spot, because this is what he wants us to see. This is the great benefit to you today. 
even as you long for a fully obedient heart, this is the benefit to you today. For I will be merciful towards their iniquities and I will remember their sins no more. And I tell you what, in the Greek here, it's interesting grammar. It uses a double negative. Ume. I will not, I will remember their sins no, no more, basically is what it says. Or I will not not remember their sins. It doesn't make sense in English, right? You can't use a double negative. But in Greek, what it means is this is emphasis. Your sins will not be remembered. Your sins fully forgiven, completely forgiven. 100% forgiven. How? Through Jesus. There's nothing more for you to do. And here's my question for us today is, is, are we embracing this promise of God? Are we responding to God in a new covenant way? Or are we responding to God in an old covenant way? Because here's what I know about our hearts, is we have a tendency to want to earn something. We have a tendency, even when we're trusting Jesus, to say, yeah, 95% Jesus, but surely there's like 5% I need to do, right? We have this tendency. We tend to think, you know, uh, I really messed up. God's really mad at me. I need to do some work to, to make myself up, make it up for God. And I want you to see here, man, you're under the new covenant. Again, when I began today, I... <laughs> You might not have woken up this morning thinking about the new covenant, but if you're a child of God, you're here because of it. I want us to think about this because sometimes I see this in the churches. Um, sometimes we, we, we even look back at things of the old covenant and we think, you know, maybe if I adopt some of these practices, I'll find a more authentic form of Christianity. I'll be a little bit more acceptable to God. You know, maybe I'll take up worship on Saturday on the Sabbath, or maybe I'll adopt these, these uh, dietary laws or, or whatever it might be. And I think there's that tendency for us to try to go back to former things. And I want us to see the reason why we shouldn't. Think back to when you were a child. Did you ever get lost as a child? Did you ever lose your parents when you were a child? I remember one time as a child living in Germany, we were visiting the Heidelberg Castle. My ball I was playing with bounced away. I went to get it. When I looked up, my family was gone. I got distracted, lost my family. They must have got distracted too because they didn't realize I was gone until they got to the car. My brother said, where's Tyler? He's my dad about that still, but you know, I don't have much to stand on anymore because as a dad, I've forgotten about my own daughter. I remember a time we took the youth group to teen leadership conference. It's hosted at a retreat center in very rural part of, of Oregon, eastern Oregon. Desert, cold, it was middle of winter. My wife and I and our daughter went with the teens, and there was one point in the conference I told Karen, hey, go off, I'll take Jillian. I'm going to go with this group to this breakout session. So we were there together, and we were kind of working in a group setting at this breakout session. And at one point, I needed to use the restroom, so I got up, I went to use the restroom. Well, I didn't know this, that Jillian... Looked around, she's like, where's my dad? So she went to search for me. Her search took her out of the building into the wilderness. I came back from the bathroom, just interacting with the group, not really thinking much. Ten minutes later, probably, my son is like, where's my daughter at? I looked around, she's not on any of the couches. And then, you know that moment, your heart sinks, right? You just, your heart drops, and I got up and I went looking for her. I rounded the corner, the glass door, and there she was, this little three-year-old girl looking so sad from outside looking in the building. She had been locked out in the cold. And if my heart had dropped a little bit previously, it was at the bottom of my stomach at that point. What did I do at that moment? I ran to my daughter and I gave her a hug like I've never given her before. Now, here's the thing. It would be a very foolish thing if I saw her through that glass door and said, oh, there she is, and went back and sat down. See, that's kind of like this idea of things being a shadow of what's to come. Imagine yourself in a store looking for your child, and there's a busy store, there's aisles, and all of a sudden you hear their voice from a few aisles over. Do you say, oh, there's my daughter's voice, there's my son's voice, I'm fine, go back to shopping? 
No, you're not satisfied with the voice, are you? You want the child. And that's the point of this. When we look at the old covenant, when we look at the law, we say this was a shadow of what was to come. It was pointing us to Jesus. Why would I be satisfied with this thing? Why would I run back to it? This points me to a person. This brings me into relationship with Jesus. Why would I go back to just a voice over a few aisles away? You see how foolish it is? And so in this new covenant, we have relation with Jesus. We have intimacy with Jesus. We have Jesus. Why would I go back to the former things? Don't embrace a shadow when you have the person that it points to. So here's, my, here's, here's where I want to end today. When we really embrace the new covenant, when we value the new covenant, this is where this text should lead. First of all, it should lead to great humility. Because get this, with my hard heart, for me even to want to come to Jesus requires God's Spirit already doing a work in my heart. I didn't come to God. I didn't come to Jesus because I was smarter than somebody else, because I figured it out. I didn't come to God because I was somehow better behaved. And God's like, oh, I need that guy on my team. No, all of this is a complete work of God and what he's doing in my heart. And so great humility I have no room for arrogance here. And in that humility then should lead us to worship. Who gets the credit? Who gets the glory? Is there any part of this where I say, well, I helped out a little? No. Jesus gets the glory. This should lead us to a response of worship, my friends. That's what I want to do to end this, actually. As I was thinking about this, my Revelation 5, one of my favorite passages came to mind. What I want to do to end today's sermon is I want to read Revelation 5 as a, as a response of worship. And I want you to listen. And I want you to consider as, as the writer, as John is perplexed by who's worthy to do this thing, to open this scroll, who's worthy to fulfill God's requirements. There's only one person who's worthy. Who brought people to Jesus? Who was responsible for the work required? Only one person. And what's the response to that person? It's worship. So here's what I'd like to do. I'd like to invite you to stand. And I'm going to read this. And I'm just going to pray for us right after I'm done reading it. I just want you to listen as a response to worship. Jesus gets the credit. All worship belongs to him. Revelation 5. Then I saw... In the right hand of him who was seated on the throne, a scroll written within and on the back, sealed with seven seals. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming in a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the scroll and to break its seals? And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open it or look into it. And I began to weep loudly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll. Look into it. And then one of the elders said to me, Weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. And between the throne and the four living creatures, among the elders, I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain with seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent into all the earth. And he went and he took the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. And when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and 24 elders fell down before the lamb, each holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation, and you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. Then I looked and I heard around the throne the living creatures and the elders and the voice of many angels numbering myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. 
And I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them saying, to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be blessing and honor and glory forever and ever. And the four living creatures said, Amen. And the elders fell down and worshiped. Worshiped. Let's pray. God, we come today from this text and our response is worship. As we consider the implications of the new covenant, as we consider the blessings, as we consider the extent of your promises, we realize the only reason we have this incredible new covenant, this incredible blessing, this incredible promise is because of Jesus. And so Jesus, we worship you because you alone are worthy as we've seen today, with, with, with God's law in our hard hearts, we will never get it right. We desperately need you. What good news this is. Lord, we do not need much of a Savior if we are not much of a sinner. But the reality is, is our sin runs deep and we need a great and mighty Savior, and that's who you are. So God, this morning, this is my prayer that as we respond to your word this morning, there might be people here who have never put their trust in you. Perhaps they are still thinking they somehow can get it right if they get another chance through their own efforts. And, and God, today I pray that you would convict hearts and cause them to see, no, trust has to be put in Jesus alone. And God, others here among us, perhaps we fall into that trap. We put our trust in Jesus, but then we start trusting ourselves a little bit. We mess up and we think, oh, I've got to clean myself up a little bit. And God, today, help us to live as new covenant people who are fully accepted, whose sin will be no longer remembered, fully forgiven because of what Jesus did. God, we need your help in this. And so I pray on behalf of this congregation, those who are watching on the live stream, that you would do this work in their hearts today. And so we trust you for this. And we pray this in the name of Jesus. We pray it through your spirit. Amen.